Chapter 12 of the Shunzu, The Way to Be a Lord. The first part of this talks about the idea of rule by law as something that does not work. So this is the first of many gems of this chapter. There's this notion that the rule of law is a better way to govern than the rule of men. And that's a formulation from the Enlightenment era of European history. That term is pretty funny itself because it's essentially propaganda. Yeah, this is an age of enlightenment. It's very presumptive. Yeah, it's like going into a room and saying, I am, you know, I am the best person. Uh, if you hear that this term, this is the age of enlightenment, don't fall for the trick. Don't fall for the sales pitch. The age of enlightenment is not really enlightened. So this idea that the rule of law is should be greater than the rule of men is well refuted in this beginning part of the chapter. So Shunzi says, rules cannot stand alone and categories cannot implement themselves. There are men who create order. There are no such thing as rules creating order out of themselves. The rules are the beginning of the order, but the junza, the gentleman, is the origin of the rules. And so without, and so with the gentleman present, even if the rules are sketchy, they will become enough to be comprehensive. And this is simply how law works. You can have a set of laws and there's no such thing as having a complete description of what should happen and what should not happen. And so if you look at the constitution, the constitutional laws, then what you'll find is that there's plenty of ambiguity. And if you look at any law period, there's also a thousand cases that make you wonder what does this rule actually mean in these particular cases? And so that's why in common law systems, you have these judges taking law passed by the legislature and they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, in this particular case, actually you broke the law, but in this other particular case, you did not break the law and I'm going to add some clarification. And that's what is called Stare decisis, and that's how common law systems work. So even if the rules are sketchy, they are enough to be comprehensive if you have Jinza in positions of leadership. Furthermore, without the Jinza, the gentleman, even if the rules are complete, one will fail to apply them in the right order and will be unable to respond to changes in affairs. And thus, they can serve to create chaos. In other words, without the Junza, even if the rules are descriptive and well stated, they will still end up creating chaos because of the failure to apply them correctly. 
and the failure to be able to properly respond to new situations. So if you look at a lot of modern countries, there's tons of law that get very descriptive. But if the police don't uphold them, they might as well not exist. If the judges interpret these laws improperly, then you have the wrong people going to jail and the wrong people staying free. We get further advice here. One who tries to correct the arrangements of the rules without understanding their meaning, even if he is broadly learned, is sure to create chaos when engaged in affairs. There's a meaning behind the rules. If you have a good set of rules, there's a meaning behind it. There's some, some people you want to protect, or perhaps there's a kind of behavior or intention you want to discourage. There's some kind of meaning behind the rules. It is about something. It is not simply there and we just follow it blindly. So for example, your intellectual property laws should encourage innovation in order to benefit society. Once those kinds of innovations, those creations, no longer benefit society, we should not protect them. Unfortunately today, you've got judges using stare decisis to declare it's not our role to determine whether or not this music or this invention or this product hurts society. And so they allow and protect all sorts of evil contraptions and perverse creations. And so we have chaos emerging from that. And that is what Shunza is talking about here. So you have to understand their meaning. The rules, if they are good rules, come from moral principles. And moral principles is part of E. And guess who has E as a characteristic, as a virtue? It is the jenza, the gentleman. So the next part of this paragraph is simply about, you need to find the right person. Usually the right person refers to the prime minister, but moreover, what can be said about the prime minister can also pertain to other people high up in court. And there'll be more specificity on that at the end of the chapter. Around line 47, Shinza says that the proper use of such equipment and measures is what flows from good order, but it is not the fount, in other words, the foundation of good order. The Junza, the virtuous person, is the fount of good order. The officials keep watch over the measures and the Junza, gentlemen, nurtures the fount. If the fount is pure, what comes from it was pure. If the fount is muddled, what flows from it will also be muddied. Thus, if the superior is fond of Li and E, and elevates the worthy employees are capable, and is without a heart that is greedy for profit, then his subordinates will essentially be proper. He, they will go to their utmost, and they will be loyal and trustworthy and diligent. 
And this will reach even the lowly list of the common people out there. The commoners, of course, refer to most people, and the commoners are not ubiquitous. I, I like to use the term the multitudes because it reflects the fact that there are many types of people out amongst the common uh, class. I'm a commoner, and you are likely to be a commoner if you're listening. But there are clearly really terrible people, as well as virtuous people without rank. And so therefore, people will work hard without the use of rewards and obey without the use of punishments, if the Lord is virtuous. And you have all sorts of improvements within the state. Along line 80 and beyond, we have a discussion on how to be good in a particular relation. For example, if you're a person's lord, you should be objective, inclusive, and you should act according to ritual propriety. And so we have a whole bunch of these, uh, for example, how do you be a good a person's son, be respectful, loving, and have utmost good form? How do you be a good uh, person's husband? Be extremely hardworking and do not stray. Uh, and that could, that phrase is interesting, do not stray. Obviously, this could also include faithfulness, right? You do not stray from your husband uh, in your love. But also, it could also refer to your duties as a wife. Be extremely watchful and follow proper distinctions. Uh, one thing that a lot of women do when their wives is they attempt to enrich their own parents at the expense of their husbands uh, and their children. That is something I've seen happen. That would not be an example of following proper distinctions. And then, how do you be a person's wife? Um, oh, excuse me, I had this incorrectly. Okay, so if you're a person's husband, if you want to be a good husband, what you want to do is you want to be extremely hardworking and do not stray. Um, okay, that, especially back then, the males and females had different roles because males are a lot stronger than females. You didn't have a lot of appliances and machines to be able to allow a woman to do much of what a man is uniquely capable of doing. So the what you work at is different and do not stray of course is also you know continue loving your wife um, don't stray from her so it's a similar thing. Um, there's you know what does that mean though if you're talking about a polygamous society um, what that means is you shouldn't spend all this time at the bar getting drunk and flirting with the women there uh, who are serving you beer and, and so forth. That's something that has happened uh, in former times and that would be strange. And that's different from, uh, for example, a man has a wife, uh, but they're, no, not let, they're not able to have children and so the husband's thinking of having a 
an additional wife. That's a completely different uh, situation because, you know, in one case, um, the husband, when he is at the bar and so forth, he's simply being reckless. Um, in the second case, there's something serious at stake, which is the, the ability to have children. Okay, and, and this is not something that is only true for, say, East Asian cultures. Uh, I know that during the Reformation in Europe, Martin Luther, uh, he was once asked um, in a letter by somebody who was not able to have children, and he was he asked, does the Bible prohibit polygamy? And Martin Luther, of course, is very scrupulous about his biblical interpretation. And he had to write back, I really couldn't find anything. Please just use your best moral judgment and sincerity. Okay, be extremely watchful and follow proper distinctions. Um, husbands are typically, in most eras, in charge of protecting the household. So you have to be very watchful. Um, and it's something that comes instinctually to, to men. Uh, we're territorial. Women, not so much. And this goes for other uh, species as well. Follow proper distinctions, meaning, um, you know, this is essentially abiding by ritual. Uh, and then, for if you want to be a good wife, Shinzo says, if you're okay, so there's two cases. Uh, this, if the husband does follow ritual as he's supposed to, as we just talked about, then completely obey him and wait upon him attentively. In other words, you are helping him. Um, in biblical terms, this is this would be like being a helpmate. Um, so you're you're helping him. You're close to him. Um, and again, back then especially the husband is the one leading the family. If you are, if you want to know more about how to um, apply these ideas to the modern situation, and if you have questions about, well, why is, should the husband still lead the family in modern times and so forth, that's a discussion we'll have in the, in the Zhong and family lecture. But here, let's talk about what Shunzi is saying. Uh, if your husband does not follow the dictates of ritual, then you have to be careful. Here he says, be apprehensive, but keep yourself respectful. Uh, or in other words, keep yourself fearfully alert, according to the end note here. I mean, the footnote here. So um, another, what's going on here is if he does not follow ritual, um, it does not necessarily mean he's abusive, but he could be sloppy. He could be a uh maybe a deadbeat uh not in the sense that he's physically abusive but he's he's neglecting his duties and so since he's not properly leading and watching out for the family it falls on the wife's shoulders and so she has to be even more apprehensive about the outside world I like the next paragraph, and this is something that probably will give a sigh of relief to a lot of modern listeners. If these ways are established in a one-sided manner, in other words, if only one person does this but not the other, if only the 
uh, wife is good but not the husband if only the son is good but not the father if only the king is um, if, if only these the subject is good but not the king um, interestingly one exception to this could also be um, the Lord as we'll talk about later in the chapter but um, if it's only one-sided if it's not reciprocated then there will be chaos but if they are established in a comprehensive manner, there will be order. So this matter is certainly worth keeping a watch over. Another way to interpret this is, and so this matter can certainly be proven. The Lord might be one uh, situation in which, um, well, at the beginning, the, if the Lord is pure, because the Lord is like the fount, then he can change how his people react to him. But if they use their free will and say a minister does not act reciprocally uh, to the Lord, then you do have chaos. So overall, you need both sides of the relationship to do what they should do. So if you're a son, you should be respectful, loving, have good form. But if you're a father, you have to be broad-minded, kind, and follow ritual. So if if there's a son who is who is doing the right things, but the father does not, you have chaos. And if there's a father who's doing the right things and the son does not, there's also chaos. Now, the next question that's addressed is, can I ask about what... To do so in order you, uh, let me ask what you can do so that you can maintain all these relationships that's that's 105 and Shinzo's answer is exercise vigilance over these relationships through ritual um, and you have this really good explanation later in the paragraph and so the gentleman is reverent without being intimidated and is respectful without being frightened in poverty and desperate circumstances he is not distressed. In wealth and honor, he is not arrogant. The second part here is a lot easier. It's easier to be wealthy and not arrogant. But if you're facing poverty and desperate circumstances, uh, it's very, very easy to be distressed. So the Junzu is really a step above simply being a good person. Because being impoverished and in a desperate situation uh, say facing death, of course, people will be distressed. So already here, the junza is is at a higher level than most people will ever become. Lastly, the junza encounters change in circumstance without being at a loss to how to respond, because he exercises vigilance over these things through ritual. So if you have weird circumstances in life, and you'll have plenty of that. In the modern world because the modern world is chaotic and the fount of it is chaotic then ritual will be your friend because ritual tells you how to do things artfully and is built upon moral principle so if you follow ritual and you adapt it to your circumstances which is not easy of course but if you can do this then you will automatically do be doing the morally correct thing and you will be doing this in a way that 
optimizes your success because you are doing this in a way that is courteous and respectful when it's deserved, but also timely and bold and courageous when you have to be. And so the Junzi's approach to ritual is that he respects it and he finds comfort in it. He follows righteousness in accordance with the proper categories for things. And in dwelling in his village and neighborhood, he is easygoing and not disorderly. Disorderly has to do with, uh, you know, not being drunk in public and playing loud music that your neighbors can hear. Okay, now as we continue on this discussion, at the end of this paragraph, he says, this is called being a sage. Now the sage is even beyond the Jinza. And the sage is this kind of ideal, almost theoretically uh, possible kind of human being, sort of like math and infinity. You know, you, you recognize there is such a thing, but you never reach it. Um, I don't, I don't think it's impossible to reach, but becoming a sage is not something that uh, you can expect to find just anywhere. So uh, his rent is abundant to cover everyone under heaven without strain. His intelligence is so far reaching as to make use of heaven and earth to bring order to the myriad changes without perplexity. His blood and chi are harmonious and balanced. What is chi? Chi is essentially energy that comes from the spirit and body. And every philosopher has a different formulation of what this is. Similarly to if I say your soul, you have a general understanding of what a soul means. But if you ask me to break it down into a specific definition, my definition is not going to be exactly the same as somebody else's. So it's the same thing with chi. His blood and chi are harmonious and balanced. Essentially what this means is that he has good levels of energy and he takes care of his body. His thoughts and intentions are broad and great. His practice of E fills up the space between heaven and earth. He is a height of red and wisdom. This is called being a sage. You have these broad and great intentions and thoughts. It's not simply, oh, how do I pay off my mortgage? Although, you know, that is cause for concern. It's not simply, how do I get my children into college? It is not simply these little things. His intentions are broad and great. He wants to help the entire world. He wants to look out into the future for his many, many descendants. This next part here is important, 142. May I inquire about how to run the state? The answer is, I have heard of cultivating one's person, in other words, your virtue, but I've never heard of running the state. Now, this is where he starts to make all these analogies for the Lord. In other words, the Lord is the one who gives direction. The Lord is the one who sets the tone. The Lord is the one who, who prioritizes certain moral values. And so everybody else will follow and have similar values. So if the Lord wants material goods, then the people will follow and become greedy. If the Lord wants righteousness, then the people will be inclined towards morality. So you have all of these analogies uh, like sundials, basins, bowls, 
and so forth, the fount. So if you want the people to care and love for you, then you should love for the, and care for the people as for the Lord. If you want people to be loyal, then the Lord needs to be to have a sense of benevolence. So whatever you, um, whatever, whenever a ruler of men desires strength, security, comfort, and joy, then Shunzi says nothing is as good as going back to the source of these things in the people. All right, on line one eighty, now we get to this part about how to find people and put them in positions of power and status. So the right person is such that he lives in the world of today, but his intention are set in the ways of ancient times. What does this mean? This is very interesting. So you live in today's world and you know what's going on. You know what people are like these days, who's out there, what technology is available, but you still have the intentions of the former times. The intentions of the ancient times are different from the situation of the ancient times. So the intentions mean intentions of Ren, Yi, Li, justice, righteousness, humanity, happiness, human joy. These are the intentions of the ancient times. In other words, the people of, old, of past times, they pursued these things as well. They did not pursue trying to get into to colonize Mars. They did not pursue unlimited wealth. They did not pursue the breakdown of the family. They did not pursue those things. So the intentions are essentially the values of former times. But you can adapt how to achieve those things with a today's situation. So if there are some good technologies available, make use of them. If there are some certain technologies that are bad, get rid of them or limit the use of them. So if those technologies are depriving people of their jobs or even their attention span or quality time with their families, you want to find ways to limit that. All right, line 205, the way of the true Lord. A true Lord is one who creates community. And there are four key factors for the Lord to sustain. One is to keep people alive and nurture them, and that will ensure that the people love the Lord. And you should organize and order people so that they will feel comfortable and confident in you. And you should elevate and employ worthy people so that people will delight in you. And you should beautify and ornament people and they will give you glory and they will work hard for you. And we'll talk about what beautifying and ornamenting people means. It doesn't mean only to give them rank, but also to give them a beautiful culture to live in. Line 226 is very important here. Uh, reducing the number of craftsmen and merchants while increasing the number of farmers. He's recommending to do this, and we don't do this. We increase the number of engineers, and we increase the number of financial people, um, whether we're talking about investors, bankers, businessmen, CEOs. 
And this is not a good way to actually sustain people. It makes people, certain people, very wealthy, like billionaires. But for the most part, most people are um, constantly facing the risk of an unemployment or simply are unemployed. And they're unhappy and they're always anxious about their finances. The rest of this paragraph has a lot of discussion about you know, assessing rank by judging virtue, um, giving capable people the right tasks. So overall, the point of this is to give people what they should, what is right for them to do. And therefore you will have, uh, you will have more richness in your society. Pretty straightforward. Okay, now on line 250, we're talking about finally embellishments and resources. The whole point of this is to make clear distinctions and differences. And this way, you don't have excessive or wasteful expenditures. So instead of giving lots of money and land to everybody, you give them things like titles and symbols. Titles and, and physical symbols, like uh, certain clothes. This prevents waste, but also creates a sense of order because uh, if you give something like land and money, those are limited in nature. But something like um, a robe or a certain kind of robe or a certain kind of hat for people to wear if they have high rank, that's very, relatively cheap to produce. And so you don't need all these people owning luxury cars, which is extremely expensive. You simply give them a title, uh, say, you know, a virtuous and chaste wife, uh, or I mean, a virtuous and chaste woman. Um, there are some stories where, uh, you know, somebody, ref uh, somebody refuses to be abducted uh, from an invading uh, army and so she you know she chooses death over being abducted and so uh, they build a um, they they build a kind of a gate um, and name it after her you know so that, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about something that isn't um, especially expensive like a vast tract of land but instead you're, you're telling people what this person did or their character their virtue and at the same time there's some kind of physical thing to remind us of this visually so that's the sort of thing that I'm, I'm talking about uh, it's not like a gamers tag or something So you don't have excessive or wasteful expenditures, but you make clear social divisions and achieve order and thereby protect 10,000 generations of descendants. So when there's order, embellishments reach even to the common people. And that also includes things like culture. When there's disorder, then insufficiency reaches even to the dukes and kings. In other words, when there's disorder or chaos, 
that even dukes and kings will have difficulty obtaining good things, especially peace of mind, because uh, you know chaos is something that harms um, you know harms leaders because they're you know uh, you know they're basically big targets by the power that they wield. All right, there's this interesting line here in um, 298. Those who act before the proper time will be killed without pardon. If you look at the footnote on this page, the killed without pardon might simply mean demoted. Uh, so this is not necessarily killed without pro uh, pardon. Uh, it could possibly mean that in a rational way because uh, those who keep the people from the proper times of season essentially will mean that people will starve and die because they didn't plant and harvest at the correct times. So in that sense, maybe uh, execution is not too heavy of a punishment. But it's not clear in the original English, and I just wanted to point that out. Okay, um, 310. If you, if you order a society correctly, and you fix your ranks correctly and so forth, then people will rest secure in the positions only after cultivating themselves and dare to accept responsibilities only when they are truly capable. That's something important to point out because we've had too many leaders, including a few presidents, who clearly did not accept responsibility at, until before they were capable. In other words, they they did not wait before they were truly capable before accepting that high position. And that's really sad. I, I think it's ridiculous when I see somebody that has no years of official experience or only two years of fictional experience, but one one of those years at least was you know used running for office, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not talking about you know, uh, a starting position on the city council. I'm talking about something much, much higher. So it's, it's really sad whenever I see this kind of situation. Now, uh, we start to get into a discussion of intelligence for the first time in this chapter. Uh, line 333 says, when he is both intelligent and ren, then this sort of person is a treasure for the ruler of men. Remember the right person again is referring to the prime minister. So when he is both intelligent and ren. So ren has to do with your human goodness, your human worthiness and intelligence is something separate, it's just being smart, which is not morally, innately morally uh, applicable. Now, if you do combine your rent and intelligence in, there's a lot a person can achieve. We have this section about great errors on line three, three, eight. But essentially all of these boil down to is consulting or listening to unworthy 
foolish and corrupt people. And now we get into a very interesting point here in the next paragraph, line 348. The looks of a beautiful woman are considered a disaster by the ugly ones. Uh, I like this because it's setting this up for the next couple of, um, you know, his real insight that he's trying to hand over to you. A man unprejudiced and upright is considered a festering sore by the vulgar masses. A person who follows the Tao, the way, is considered a villain by those who are corrupt and perverse. In other words, if somebody is good, don't expect everybody to like him. If somebody is upright and moral, don't expect everybody to praise him. There is such a thing as jealousy. And they know deep down inside they look bad in comparison. And moreover, they're reminded about how pitiful they actually are. So if you are a virtuous person, it doesn't mean everybody will like you. It means bad people will start to dislike you. And I've experienced in my personal life, a lot of people don't like me and they can't really give good reasons why. They just don't. It's not because I don't have a sense of humor or whatever. I mean, I'm not always lecturing. But if you look at those kinds of people, they are very shallow and they're doing the wrong things. So that creates a natural kind of distaste. Sometimes people simply don't understand goodness. Some people will look down on you because you don't make as much money as they do. And that's their problem because they're exceedingly materialistic. And of course, other people, if you're competing for the same position, they will simply become jealous of you and badmouth you. So there's a lot of reasons. But I especially like the second line, a man unprejudiced and upright is considered a festering sore by the vulgar masses. Most people are not good people. And this connects with Shunzi's insight that human nature is bad. In other words, if we don't work on ourselves, then we stay bad. And so most people do not work on themselves. So most people are the vulgar masses. So the men of ancient times, the king, the former kings, there was a way behind how they chose people and there was a model for how they employed people. And the way that they chose people was to gauge them with ritual. So that's line 360. And how do you employ people? You use gradations of status and then you measure them again with ritual. And you also can measure their wisdom, deliberations, and choices, and discretion with what they achieve. In other words, their capacity. Another way to observe the worthiness of people's virtue is to examine them through practice of ritual. So this is line 372. Examine people through practice of ritual. Observe whether they are able to rest secure in respectfulness. Give them conditions that are different and see whether they can adapt to the changes properly. So if you make their situation very nice, then observe whether they start to become lazy or licentious. Um, so you can do these sorts of things and observe 
to the quality of people and the integrity of people. On the next page, line 386, throughout this is a warning to not be nepotistic. In other words, if you want, for example, if you want somebody who is very good at archery, you're not going to favor your family members if they can't hit the target. So Shunzi says, even a sage can alter this. And so therefore, in terms of something that's also very important, running the state, you need to do the same thing. You need to have your best people in charge. It's actually a very similar argument to what uh, is argued in Plato's Republic. I mean, he points out that who do you want to be the captain of your ship? Do you want the guy with experience and expertise and skill? Or do you want somebody who has money or somebody who is popular and of course everybody knows through experience that the guy leading your, your, your ship or your, leading your army should have actual ability. And then so the argument of course is then this is the same thing with leading the government, not just leading your army or your ship. So you want to be unprejudiced and you want to be objective. Line 420 says, uh, Shunzu says, um, you can always give personal favor through gifts of goods like, you know, gemstones and, and so forth. But you never should bestow personal favor on people through giving them official position or responsibilities. So if you really want to spoil somebody, give them something, but don't give them a, a position. You know. Okay. There's another interesting line. We're almost done with this chapter. Uh, there's another interesting line on one, uh, excuse me, on line 478. The ruler's favorites and members of his immediate circle are the gates and windows by which he observes what is far away and receives the masses. Those who are close to you are how you can understand the rest of the world. And this is especially true back then, but it's actually, if you think about it, true still today because even though, though there are things like YouTube and so forth somebody is choosing what to show you and then in the future with more advanced AI you might be able to make up what looks true in other words uh, you know there's these you know e-fakes that um, it looks like this person talking and it can sound like the person but it's not the actual person, but it looks very convincing. And in that same way, it would be like forging a letter 2000 years ago. So it's pretty soon, um, we're gonna go, we're gonna go come back to square one here. It's very interesting. So yeah, you're, you will always have to rely on reliable people, dependable people, trustworthy people in order to observe the rest of the world. Another way to do this that's not the Shunzu is if you're the king, uh, and this is before pictures and so forth, people can't actually recognize your face. So what you do is you just dress up like a commoner and uh, just walk around in some city or uh, village or marketplace. And you just observe what people are like. And that's what a lot of kings used to do back in the day. They just put on some regular clothes, went out, uh, had his servants and guards wear regular clothes too, and so you just you just walk around and see what's going on, and then he can tell 
what's what's you know what's going on because if it, once people know you're a king they're gonna change your behavior so you just dress up like a commoner and observe all right 506 talks about diplomacy interactions with the feudal lords who border the four sides of one state are something in which one cannot involve avoid involvement unfortunately however these interactions will not necessarily be mutually genial so you have to this whole section this and the next one is talking about diplomacy and choosing good emissaries and so forth they have to be trustable etc so th these are some very um, very sensible uh, discussions here the last part of this chapter is about classifying people according to the material that's line 531 so there are three kinds of groups in uh, types of people in the government um, going from top to bottom it's the prime minister premier counselor and then the next level is the uh, overseer of officials grand minister and then last is the official scribe or functionary so let's talk about each one what we should look for for these if you're an official scribe or functionary you're kind of a bureaucrat and so these people of course want to be honest and hardworking and meticulous they're good at keeping track of details all right this makes sense they're scrupulous people who are going to be your bureaucrats and they're not going to go outside of their role they're restrained people and so in other words they're not going to accept bribes but also they're not going to try to play politics using their position as bureaucrats then we have people who are more using their discretion and so now we have to think about uh, more loftier virtues so here we're talking about the ministers uh, and the overseer of bureaucrats okay so they're cultivated in terms of their virtue and they're careful upright and correct they exalt the proper model and they avoid um, temptation and they follow through their assigned tasks so here we're starting to move into conscientiousness some fundamentals of morality and good intention okay by the time we get closer up to the prime minister the premier the counselors um, high-ranking ministers in general then now these people have to be well versed in ritual and e ritual uh, lee and righteousness morality they are concerned with customs and culture they follow a constant model they honor the worthy and they employ the capable and they work at the fundamental tasks of the country economics uh, defense culture law etc what about the ruler of men what about the king he's not one of the people employed but his key 
essential skill is to judge people according to these three different kinds and then be able to put them into position. In other words, he is judging and assessing people. That's what he needs to do. He does not exhaust himself by going into very detailed matters. And that's a very easy thing for most people to believe is, oh, we want a king, we want a leader who works hard all the time, is constantly working, never plays golf, never relaxes, never goes on vacation, um, and is, is always slaving away at his desk looking to every little detail. And that that's not even humanly possible for anybody to achieve. Uh, but on top of that, it's not necessary. It's not optimal to do. It's not, um, it's not effective to do it this way. So people have their different roles, and it's good enough for the ruler of men to look out for the people he employs and see if and judge their character, assess their ability. After Sun's time, by the time we get to the Han and the Tang dynasties, and certainly by the time we get to the Song dynasty, uh, there's a formalized way and systematic way of doing this, wherein uh, the king is not interviewing everybody face to face, but there is a test being used. And the test is there to assess people's ability and also indirectly discover their virtue. So re remember when we talked about Ren and intelligence as being very important for the right prime minister and so forth for any of these high ranking leaders? This test attempts to assess Ren and intelligence together by asking questions that need to be answered through essays. So the three types of questions are one, a philosophical question, two, a policy question, such as these days people have trouble with intoxication, how would you fix this? And so, you know, there's, you need to propose a policy response to a current problem. And number three, there is some kind of poetry or composition that is asked um, and this is uh, to get a glimpse into the person's heart. And it's trying to do this part of the examination is doing something similar to what colleges do when they ask you to write an application essay. Except with a college application essay, you could always have all this help because nobody, you're not there writing the essay in front of the test taker, excuse me, in front of the proctor. Whereas if you are trying to pass ex this examination and succeed on it in order to become a, a scholar official, uh, you do this through a number of rounds and you are proctored each time. And the very last proctor is a king or the emperor himself. So he's there, you can't send somebody in because he's gonna see your face and he's gonna ask, why do you look different this time? So, and also these tests are uh, graded double blind. Um, they, they even do things like copy the exam answers uh, that you've written uh, so that you can't recognize the person's handwriting. They take off your, your name and replace it with a number. So there's just all sorts of, uh, they figured out every way 
they possibly could to prevent forgery, to prevent cheating. Uh, or undue bias because, again, uh, the people's names are being removed. So the, the examination system, that's something I would uh, go into into depth in the uh, E and REN governing, because there I would talk about different kinds of constitutions that are Confucian uh, throughout history and how well they work or might not work. And we can compare the advantages of each. There's no such thing as a completely 100% perfect system. And that goes back to what Shunza said at the beginning. You still need virtuous people to lead society. You can't rely on a set of self-executing rules. Society is not like a computer program, where as long as you write this perfect program, if even that's possible, you can have a perfectly functioning and harmonious society. It never works that way. You need the human beings to lead and to decide to be good and to cultivate themselves. So um, let me add one last th thing here, just supposedly a quote by John Adams, um, who said, this constitution is for those who are for a religious and moral people. And I think that's so ridiculous. You might as well say, this people, sorry, excuse me, this government is for people who do not need a government. What's the point? So, Shunzi is right. There's no such thing as a set of rules that's perfectly self-executing. You do need people to decide to be good, to lead the society for the betterment of those who do not have that capacity to be much better or simply choose not to. You need virtuous people to lead the vulgar masses. You cannot let these uncultivated people who are too busy to expand their knowledge, perhaps not smart enough to handle the work, or maybe perhaps they're simply lazy in their self-cultivation. You cannot have these people run the society as equals. You do need that order. You do need that hierarchy. You do need the wise, intelligent, and virtuous up at top leading the society. And so I want to end the, this discussion on chapter 12 by saying again what Shunza said at the beginning. There are no chaotic lords. There are no, excuse me, there are chaotic lords. There are no states chaotic of themselves. There are men who create order. There are no rules creating order out of themselves. The rules cannot stand alone and categories cannot implement themselves. Category referring to hierarchy. The rules are the beginning of order, but the junzu, the gentleman, the virtuous man, is the origin of the rules. Without the junzu, even if the rules are complete, one will fail to apply them in the right order and will be unable to respond to changes in affairs and thus they can be used to chaos. With the junzu present, even if the rules are sketchy, they are enough to become comprehensive. One who tries to correct the arrangements of the rules without understanding their meaning, even if he is broadly learned, is sure to create chaos. And so 
the enlightened ruler hastens to obtain the right person. The deluded ruler hastens to obtain power. If one hastens to obtain the right person, one can rest at ease and the state will be ordered.